Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Jane Campion's 2009 film, Bright Star. It's about the brief but beautiful love story between the poet John Keats and a young woman named Fanny Braun. John Keats is considered one of the greatest poets who ever lived, but he died quite young before he and Fanny could create a life together. Their romance was marked by distance and the ever-present shadow of death, but his passionate letters to her, which are featured throughout the film, reveal how deeply he was in love with Fanny and how much she meant to him. This is one of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. I love it so much. I talk about the relationship between John Keats and Fanny, how the film shows the precarious life of a writer, and explores the importance of poetry in our lives, and much more. There are spoilers in this episode. Not a lot happens, and most people know the story of John Keats and Fanny Brown, but just in case anybody's listening who hasn't seen the full film, I talk about everything about this film. I hope you like this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash Her Head in Films for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Her Head in Films. You can review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode about Jane Campion's Bright Star. to be honest, as I'm recording this episode, I don't know how I'm gonna sound or if you'll be able to tell, but I'm just not like in the greatest place in my life right now. And um, I lost my dog recently. We had to put him down and his name was Boomer. And I've talked about him a little bit on the podcast. I talked about him in some episodes. Um, I did one about Kelly Reichardt's Wendy and Lucy. I did another episode about Umberto D by DeSica. And so those films have dogs in them. It's part of the story. And so I think I did talk about Boomer a little bit. We had him for 10 years. My mom got him on the day that I went to college in 2010. So we got him when I was around 20 years old and now I'm 31. So for a decade of my life, I had this dog and it feels like the end of an era and it's really painful to lose him like during the pandemic or I guess at the later stages of the pandemic and it just feels like oh yeah you know what a terrible experience this has been the past year or so and now I also have lost my dog it just feels terrible I'm gonna continue to do episodes through it because the podcast is one of the few things in my life where I actually feel some kind of value and I feel like other people 
like what I share and connect to me and that's a nice feeling. I don't really have a lot of great things in my life <laughs> these days so I definitely didn't want to stop doing episodes but I can't pretend like I'm not heartbroken or I'm not crushed right now or I'm not struggling with a lot of things all at once. And I know that everybody's suffering, everybody's struggling, but when you're in your own pain, it's difficult. And when I am in my pain, what I try to do is I try not to retreat and I try not to isolate and I try not to turn away from the world, from life, from other people. I do try to stay engaged and stay connected. That's what helps me through it. It would be easy to kind of go crawl in a hole or isolate myself. And maybe I would have done that in the past, but I would rather share. I would rather try to connect. I would rather try to reach out and just work through it. And so that's why I will continue to do episodes, but it's still a very fresh loss. It only happened a few weeks ago. I mean, by the time this episode is shared, it'll probably be closer to a month or something. I just feel a lot of heartbreak these days about various things. It's not just about Boomer's death, but other things going on in my life. And I don't know if it comes through my voice. I don't know if it comes through the episodes or anything, but I'm always honest. So just wanted to be honest about it. So I'm talking about Bright Star by Jane Campion. I really love this film. I think I saw it. I don't know if I saw it when it first came out, I feel like maybe I did, but I'm not sure. Maybe I saw it a few years after, but it's probably been close to a decade since I last watched it. And I actually had the DVD from like, from when it was released. So I think this DVD is like a decade old or something like that. It has a few extra features, but they're only a couple of minutes. It was nice to be able to watch the DVD. And I remember when I bought that DVD and watching it years ago, and I just remember my experience of this film. It's always been a really powerful film for me. I was a literature major in college a decade ago, which is hard to believe. As I said, I went in 2010. I graduated in 2014. Feels like a lifetime ago. And I did study literature. I read Keats. I'm sure I read Keats in college, but I actually remember reading Keats in high school. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. So I have sort of a relationship with John Keats, with the romantic poets, with poetry in general, and with English literature. The film appealed to me for that. It appealed to me because I love Jane Campion. I have a really deep connection with her film, The Piano. I have an episode about it if you're interested. I saw that when I was really young. I don't know exactly what age I was, but I was quite young when I first saw it. And it just electrified me. And it was like an intense emotional experience. And I've never gotten over it. So Jane Campion's work for me is really personal and I love everything about it. What's interesting a bit about Bright Star is that this was her first film in quite a few years. She did a film called In the Cut in 2003 that was not well received and it hindered her for quite a few years and made it hard for her to make another film for a while. I have an episode about In the Cut. It's very sexually graphic. Be prepared if you're, (laughs) if you go and listen to it or you watch the film. In the Cut is like an erotic thriller. In the Cut and Bright Star could not be farther apart (laughs) in terms of everything. In the Cut is set in the early 2000s. Bright Star is set in the 1800s. One is a thriller. One is more of a romantic film. But I do think that what they share and that what all of Campion's work shares is the centering of women 
and our experience of love and desire. In the Cut is really about desire. It's about like really like the dark side of desire, the intense hunger for another person, the sexual desire for another person. Bright Star is more romantic. Bright Star is not sexual at all. It's quite chaste and tender and these are like worlds apart, but I love both of them for different reasons. And so Bright Star is really close to my heart. I just think it's such a gorgeous film and there's so many important themes that I'm going to talk about. And it was really lovely to revisit this film. Is it my favorite Campion film? No, I think The Piano is definitely my favorite and second would be In the Cut. And I think, I guess Bright Star would be number three probably. I still need to see um, An Angel at My Table. I haven't seen that, but I've seen almost all of Jane Campion's work. She is a compelling director. I love her. I love how she looks at women's lives, how she looks at female desire and female sexuality, and also our just our experiences with love, particularly our relationships with men. I think she's such a feminist director, personally, and her work really resonates and speaks to me. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about John Keats. Then I wanted to talk about sort of the setup for this film of like, it's a little bit complicated about, well, why are they in this house? And who are the Dilks? And who's Brown? And so I wanted to go through a little bit of that. And then I'll get into some important themes of the film that I found really compelling. So John Keats was born in 1795 and he died in 1821. He's considered one of the greatest poets who ever lived now, but in his lifetime he didn't publish a lot of poems and he was mostly attacked by critics. He was not considered that great when he was alive. I did a little bit of research on the website of the Poetry Foundation, and in their article about John Keats, they wrote, quote, he published only 54 poems in three slim volumes and a few magazines, but over his short development, he took on the challenges of a wide range of poetic forms, from the sonnet to the Spenserian romance to the Miltonic epic, defining anew their possibilities with his own distinctive fusion of earnest energy, control of conflicting perspectives and forces, poetic self-consciousness, and occasionally dry ironic wit." Unquote. That article also says, quote, In Keats's work, the struggle with aesthetic form becomes an image of a struggle for meaning against the limits of experience. His art's very form seems to embody and interpret the conflicts of mortality and desire. The urgency of this poetry has always appeared greater to his readers for his intense love of beauty and his tragically short life. Keats approached the relations among experience, imagination, art, and illusion with penetrating thoughtfulness, with neither sentimentality nor cynicism, but with a delight in the ways in which beauty, in its own subtle and often surprising ways, reveals the truth, unquote. His work is very sensual and sensuous. It engages your senses deeply, I think. It's beautiful to read his work. He was interested in beauty. He did sort of, um, he was intoxicated by beauty and it's all over his poetry. I don't know a ton about the romantic poets. I've read some of them a little bit, right? And I have read some John Keats. And so I'm not able to give like this really in-depth understanding of the romantic poets, right? But I do think it's it's fair to say he is considered one of the greatest poets who ever lived. And he did very important things with poetry that has influenced countless other poets. And he lived such a short life and didn't even get to enjoy any of that fame, which is 
so unfortunate and seems to happen a lot to all the best writers that they have these short lives and they don't even get to they don't even get to know their influence you know somebody like Emily Dickinson or even Kafka comes to mind didn't have a really long life either Keats is unfortunately that kind of writer he has a huge influence but he in his own lifetime he didn't get to enjoy that so I did want to give a little bit of background information about Fanny Braun and John Keats their relationship um, the house where they lived like all kinds of stuff like that so the love story between John Keats and Fanny Braun lasted only a few short years and the way that I got interested in their love affair or their love story is through this film I didn't know much about John Keats and Fanny before this film, but as you know, I love literature, I love poetry. So after I saw the film years ago when it came out, I got the book. There's a book that's also called Bright Star and it's edited by Jane Campion and half of the book are the letters that John Keats sent to Fanny Braun and then the other half is some of John Keats's poetry and she also did an introduction for the book and it's like one of my prized books I love it for this episode I did go back and I did reread it and my god <laughs> reading those love letters it immediately makes you want to fall in love like you want to find somebody who will write letters like that to you that's what I was I was swooning I was swooning as I read those letters again they're just extraordinary and I'm going to read some excerpts from them in this episode I was like, I want to find a man who writes me love letters like this. I think many women would like that. They're incredibly romantic. They're full of just passion and intensity and emotion and aching and oh my lord, I've gotten kind of into love letters lately. I bought a book of the love letters. I don't know if they're all love letters, but just the letters and correspondence between Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West. There's been a new edition of those published for a really long time there was a book of them but they were out of but it was like out of print it was like really really expensive so there's just been a newly published version that's actually affordable and I got it and I'm gonna read it soon probably so I've kind of gotten a little bit into like love letters I don't know why but I think they're a very intimate art form and I think I have the love letters another collection of letters between Vita Sackville West and another woman. (laughs) So somehow Vita is in my life right now. I just, oh, and I also have letters that Emily Dickinson and Susan Gilbert exchanged. It's hard to define that relationship. I mean, I think by today's standard, we would kind of call it romantic or like a love thing, but I don't know if Emily and Susan would define it in that way at that time, but I've heard that they're very passionate. I haven't read them yet. So I have a few love letter collections. I don't have a ton, but it's a genre, I guess you could say, that does interest me. Letters in general are kind of interesting. I know that there's several volumes of Virginia Woolf's letters. I would like to have those one day, but I don't have them right now. I do have all the volumes of her diary that I've been trying to go through. I'm still in the first volume though, so it's slow progress for me. The pandemic really affected my ability to read. 
I'll be honest, I have really struggled in the past year or so to read as much as I used to. But this is something that's been going on for years for me. The internet kind of did something to my ability to concentrate and focus and read as much as I would like. But I'm trying to get back into books more and read more because that part of me is really important to me, the literary part of me. And I'm someone who's drawn to poetry, to literary fiction, to literature in translation, experimental stuff, like more hybrid or fragmented stuff. I'm into a lot of different writers. Um, I love Clarice Lispector, for instance. I just got like quite a few volumes of her work that I want to revisit. I'm into Virginia Woolf. I'm into Sylvia Plath. I'm really, really obsessed with Marguerite Duras. She's a really big writer for me. So I have all kinds of different things that I read. So I want to get back into that. And so reading these letters that John Keats wrote, to Fanny Brown and we only have his letters we don't have hers I don't know when I was reading them I really loved them and I just kind of felt connected to that part of myself like yeah online right now I'm or through this podcast I'm known as a film person and film is absolutely essential and so meaningful to me and important to me but books and literature are equal for me like those are the two twin passions of my life are books and films I can't live without either one and sometimes I alternate I'll get really obsessed with films for a while then I'll get obsessed with books for a while and then sometimes I find this really perfect balance <laughs> where I am able to to read and watch films where I'm able to find time for both. It's not always easy, but I try. So anyways, I'll get back to John Keats and Fanny Brown. I went on a tangent as usual. So their romance only lasted a few years. I came across it through this film and I bought the book and read the letters and fell in love with this love story. So their romance began in 1818 when they first met while the Brown family visited the Dilks. And the Dilks shared a house called Wentworth Place with Keats's best friend, who was named Charles Armitage Brown. When Keats visited and later lived with Brown, Fanny got to know Keats. Fanny and Keats, they seemed like this mismatched pair. He was a poet, she was interested in fashion, but they really formed an intense bond pretty quickly, and I'll talk about that. So Wentworth Place is where they met each other. So in 1819, the Browns, they moved into Wentworth Place, and they lived in the part of the house that was once occupied by the Dilks. So Keats and Fanny were now able to spend more time together. So one half of the house was Brown and Keats, and then the other half of the house was Fanny Brown and her family. This is when they really started to fall in love. Their love blossomed. They even got engaged. You know, she wears the ring in the film, and she would wear that ring for the rest of her life. Fanny's mother didn't really approve of that kind of marriage because Keats had such dismal financial prospects. But as you see in the film near the end, she relents to it. She knows that Keats probably is not going to live much longer. So it's also during this time, you know, he's falling in love with Fanny. Keats is also writing some of his most beloved poems, including Ode to a Nightingale, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, When He Traveled with Brown to the Isle of Wight. I think that was over a summer. 
he wrote very passionate love letters to Fanny. That's what's collected in the book Bright Star. And those letters are read throughout the film. And I love that Campion even imagines what Fanny might have written to Keats because we don't know. But I love that Campion gives her a voice and imagines those letters. I mean, any time that Keats and Fanny were separated, he wrote letters and notes to her to stay in contact, and he professed his love to her through them. Unfortunately, his health started to deteriorate in 1820 after he got caught in the cold without a coat and he had a lung hemorrhage. Doctors advised him to go to Italy where the weather would be better for his tubercular condition, so he did have tuberculosis. The looming trip to Italy was very difficult for Fanny and and Keats, as you see in the film. In her introduction to Bright Star, the book with the love letters and the poems, Jane Campion says that um, Keats reported that Fanny said, quote, is there another life? There must be. We cannot be created for this kind of suffering, unquote. And you see that scene in the film as well. So after moving to Italy, Keats he found it really impossible to write to her and she never received another letter from him from Italy Um, and he died there in 1821. His death really devastated her. She mourned him. She cut off her hair, wandered the woods. I'll talk more about that later in the episode. The depth of her grief really matched the depth of her love. She did go on with her life. She married and she had children. She actually translated and published short stories. People may not know that. And she ended up dying in 1865. At the end of the film, it says she never took the ring off. I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess Campion wouldn't have put that in there if it was not true if it were not true but I don't know how that worked with her husband and her children you know her wearing this ring but maybe she put it on a certain finger or something like that so yeah I just wanted to give a little bit of background because I think it might be a bit confusing in the film like who are the Dilks and why are all these people in this house and it's a little confusing at first half the house was occupied by the Dilks and half was by Brown Keats's close friend and then Um, The Dilks, I guess, rented their half out to Fanny Brown and her family, and they moved in and lived there for a while. And that's what allowed her to get closer to John Keats, is that they were living in close proximity to each other. That's what I found out when I did my research. I hope that makes some sense. So now I want to talk about the film and different themes and stuff like that. With our cast, we have Abby Cornish as Fanny Brown. We have Ben Wishaw as John Keats. We have Paul Schneider as Charles Brown. I thought it was interesting to note that Campion sort of saw the film as about a love triangle, but with Keats at the center of it. Instead of, usually it's the woman, right, at the center of a love triangle. But Keats is at the center of this triangle. I would say, though, that, um, I mean, I understand why Campion wanted to include Brown in the film. I will say that a weakness of the film for me personally is that there's so much of Brown in the film. Like, he gets one of the maids pregnant, and there's, like, a little storyline about that. He's, like, very, um, he's very mean. You know, he is the villain in the film. He's very protective of Keats. He sees Keats as this magnificent, important poet, and he wants to protect him, but his protectiveness gets so extreme, and he's so ugly and mean and cruel, particularly to Fanny. It's fine that that's in there. It's a little bit in there too much for me. I think there's too much brown at times, (laughs) but I understand she kind of added him in there probably for the conflict 
for that love that sort of love triangle type thing because Brown did love Keats I mean he clearly did you know and he saw Keats's talent and I think he just he saw Fanny as like really shallow you know Fanny loved fashion she was known for that and you see it in the film of course he just thought she was really shallow and like she was a flirt and he thought that she was gonna distract Keats and get him away from his writing but really the opposite happened. Keats was writing some of his best work when he met Fanny. I think falling in love with her was great inspiration for him, probably deepened his work, and he was writing these gorgeous love letters to her as well. Fanny was not shallow. She wasn't shallow at all. And I'll also tell you that John Keats's letters to Fanny, they weren't published until 15 years after Fanny died. So Fanny died in 1865 and I think she made it so that those letters wouldn't come out until after her death. That was the interesting thing that I learned. I think this film does such a tremendous job of giving Fanny a complex and nuanced personality. She's witty, she's smart, she's stylish. You know, she's a young girl, she's a young woman who finds and loses the love of her life in a really short period of time. So whatever Brown thought about her, it wasn't true. None of it was true. And just because she liked fashion, it didn't mean that she wasn't deep. You know, her and Keats had a very powerful bond. So anyways, I wanted to say that that Campion saw it as a bit of a triangle, but I definitely could have done without without Brown. <laughs> he was in there too much at times, I thought. And the setting of the film is Hampstead Village in London in 1818. That's what we see at the beginning of the film. So I wanted to talk about my relationship to John Keats. I first read Keats in high school in an AP English class, probably my junior or senior year. I remember the specific teacher and all of that. I don't know about some of you listening, but like, you know, I'm 31 right now. I'm going to be 32 in about a month or so. I have really powerful memories of my childhood. And I don't know how it is for some of you listening. I remember this English class. I remember the teacher. I even remember the classroom where it was taught. And like, I remember reading this John Keats poem. Um, It's called To Autumn. And it's one of his odes. We read a few odes by John Keats um, in that class. Personally, because of my um, memory of reading it for the first time and the way that it affected me, it is my favorite John Keats poem. I'm sure it's not one of his most famous or anything, but to me, it stays with me. And every time autumn comes, (laughs) I read this John Keats poem. So I wanted to read the poem because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. And I really love when I have Caitlin's Poetry Corner. I love to do my little poetry readings for those of you who listen. So this is called To Autumn by John Keats. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, 
while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers, and sometimes like a gleaner thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day, and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wellful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born. Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. That is To Autumn by John Keats. So this film really reminds me of when I was younger and, you know, when I used to read poetry with such wonder and awe. I still try to do that. I'm one of those people, I'm still very connected to my childhood and my youth and I try to hold on to it. I try to hold on to that tenderness, that softness, that wonder and that awe. It's really important to me. I just think of myself back then when I was a teenager and I was dreamy and I loved poetry and so I think that's why I love the film so much as well is that it it spoke to my image of what a poet was someone who lies in a tree you know in the treetops and thinks and feels deeply someone who lives in beauty the whole film is beautiful and it's just that's how I imagine a poet (laughs) lying in the treetops right you know I was a different person when I first saw this film and sometimes it feels like another person, another version of me entirely. And sometimes I'm not sure how to get back to her. And I miss her. I miss who I was. But I think I still am that version of myself. I think I am. I do sometimes worry though that certain experiences and the world in general, that they are hardening me. That um, I'm losing some of that softness and tenderness that I'm trying to hold on to, but I feel like I'm losing it at times. And I feel like I have lost something precious as I've gone through life and I feel really worn down. I feel like at times that I have lost my hopes. I have lost my dreams. So this film brings up a lot for me. I think it's just like, I still remember watching it. I still remember everything that it made me feel. It's been quite a few years since I last saw it, but it moves me. I've always loved poetry. I even used to write poetry, even though I don't think of myself as a poet at all. (laughs) But I still love it. And um, I love that poem by John Keats. So I wanted to talk about some themes about the film. First of all, there's just the aesthetic beauty of this film. The fashion, the interiors of the home, the the nature of the film, like all the flowers and the trees and everything like that. There's an airiness about it and a lightness as well. There are scenes in it that will just forever stay with me. The bluebells, the daffodils, the butterflies. This film is one of the most beautiful films that I've ever laid my eyes on and I just truly believe that. It's, It's a beauty worthy of poetry. It's a beauty you'd want to write poems about. I mean that's what Campion does with this film is that like my god of course Keats would write these poems look at what he's surrounded by and of course we don't know if that's what he was surrounded by but she's evoking this this beauty 
of the world that finds its way into Keats's poetry. So there are certain scenes that just live in my mind and will live there forever. Like Fanny sitting on her bed and the curtain is blowing in the breeze and the light is just flooding in through the window and she's sitting there and then she lays back on her bed and it's like that scene alone, it's something about the light that brings tears to my eyes. It's such a beautiful scene to me of just her sitting there. And I think it's earlier in the film. She's probably in the stages of falling in love with Keats. The The curtain is just, you know, blowing in the wind. The light and just everything about that scene. Like, I could just watch it forever. <laughs> it's so beautiful to me. And then there's the scene of Keats lying in the tree on a bed of blossoms. And he's just reveling in it and basking in the sunlight, basking in spring. The film really comes alive with the change of the seasons. We see different seasons in the film, particularly like winter. But then we also see spring when everything is alive and teeming and blossoming. There's Fanny in her purple dress and she's in that field of bluebells and she just falls down to the ground and she's reading Keats's letter and she's just, it's its a love letter. I think he's in the Isle of Wight and he sends her this letter and she just lies back in this field of bluebells and she's just lying there in the flowers and it's like can I do that can I find a field of bluebells and just go and lay down in it (laughs) like that's what I want to do like that's my dream life I'm with a wonderful gentle man who writes poetry to me and writes me love letters and then I live in a beautiful house in the country and I go walk in a field of bluebells (laughs) And then I lie there uh, in the flowers, in the sunlight. And yeah, that would be my dream life, I think. (laughs) The letters themselves in the film, are they're read aloud. We hear them in voiceover quite a bit. And it's also interesting to note that the composer, the music is really beautiful in this film. It's very light, very delicate. Uh, The music is by Mark Bradshaw, and he's actually married to Ben Wishaw which I think is pretty cool. I I didn't even know that until I was doing research about the film. So they're married. The music's beautiful. The letters themselves, we see the letters, we see the cursive handwriting. I think that's so beautiful. Just the handwriting. Then there's all the butterflies that are in Fanny's room, the way they flutter and float everywhere. This film was made for Tumblr. (laughs) I remember I got on Tumblr in 2010 Um, for the first time. That was when I really got on the internet. I remember when this film, well, I think the film came out before I was on Tumblr, but I remember coming across like screenshots and all kinds of stuff. Like this film was made for Tumblr for sure. The beautiful images from it. So there are all the tender moments when Fanny and Keats are kissing or they hold hands. I think Fanny's clothes are incredibly beautiful, like the pleats and the collars and some of her sweaters that have been knitted. And it's just so, I mean, Abby Cornish just looks so beautiful in this film. She just has this natural beauty about her. I mean, this has to be her best performance. I haven't seen Abby Cornish in a lot of stuff, but for me, this is her best performance to date that I've seen her in and she's just an incredibly beautiful woman but she also gives a really deep performance 
a deep performance of love, of aching, of grief. I mean, the range that she shows in this film is really extraordinary and beautiful. I think she does a superb job as Fanny. I think next to the piano, this is Campion's most visually and aesthetically gorgeous film, for sure. It enraptures me every time I watch it, and I think it's so incredibly beautiful. So I wanted to talk about Fanny and Keats's relationship and how it's represented. So their relationship gradually unfolds in the film. Their passion was deep, but not necessarily immediate. And I do appreciate how the film takes time to show us how they get to know each other and trust each other. It's a more honest look at love, I think. Obviously, they're attracted to each other from the beginning. Fanny's beautiful. Keats is attractive. I mean, I think Ben Wishaw is a very attractive man. Like very, very beautiful. He has like this delicate masculinity about him and just a stunning face. Like (laughs) he is a beautiful man. He's incredibly beautiful and attractive in this film. These are two beautiful people uh, getting together. So of course they're attracted to each other, but we see them get to know each other. We see their conversations evolve. I like that they do talk to each other. You know, they do have conversations, they share, and they have a mutual interest in one another that develops. What really seems to bring them closer together is the illness and death of Keats's brother, Tom. Fanny's father was sick when she was younger and when she was a child and he passed away. So she's able to show empathy and compassion toward Keats. And that seems to create a bond between them. So I find it interesting and fascinating that grief is what brings them together. It, grief is what creates that bond. Fanny can relate to what Keats is going through. So they seem to connect through the pain that they both understand. Loss is what links them to each other. I do think in our worst times, that's when we know who our friends are or who the people are who really care about us, who we can trust, who we can lean on. We find out who is there for us in those really dark moments. And Keats knows he can trust Fanny. He knows that she cares about him. She stitches a tree on a pillow slip and gives it to him after Tom dies. And it's a very moving gesture on her part. And Keats is really thankful for it and finds it really beautiful. And when Fanny asks Keats to teach her about poetry, their connection grows even deeper. And that allows them to have time together and to get to know each other. And to share about a subject that Keats obviously knows a great deal about. As I said earlier, this love story, the way this film looks at love and romance is very different than something like In the Cut or even The Piano. The Piano has a darker side to it as well. This is a sweet love. This film is full of passion, but it isn't necessarily sexual the way that some of other some of Campion's other films are like the piano and in the cut because Keats and and Fanny are not really able to be together in that way that kind of takes that part of it out of the film I think there's more of a spiritual dimension to their connection it's like a spiritual love but it's also of the flesh it's both but I do think that there's an innocence about them that is very beautiful. That doesn't mean that they don't physically connect. They obviously do. They luxuriate in touching. They like to kiss. They like to hold hands. They have a beautiful intimacy about them. It's almost at times like they're not two people. It's like there's no separation between them and they seem to merge. And maybe that's what love can do. I think it can make us deeply connected to another person where you're almost fused with them. And I get the sense with this film, it's like a union of souls. 
I mean, that to me is what John Keats and Fanny Brown are. It's a union of souls. It's something spiritual as well as erotic. And there is an attraction between them. I mean, at the very end of the film, she, before he leaves for Italy, she basically says, and we don't know if this really happened, right? This is campy and doing this. But she offers to have sex with him. She says that she would do anything. And there seems to be the implication that she would have sex with him before he left for Italy. Keats says something like he has a conscience. You know, he won't let that happen. He won't do that. So there is attraction between them. They kiss, they touch, all of these things. But there's also something very emotional and spiritual about them. As I said, like this union of two souls. And that's beautiful to me. I love love that is like that. I I just do. This film is like what I dreamed love would be. Reading poetry, reciting poetry to each other, and lying in the grass and tenderly holding hands. To me, it's like this dream of love, this dream of romance of what I would want with somebody. And I think the film sort of fulfills that fantasy of mine. Like, I just love all of that. I love when they're like reciting poetry and all of that and having deep conversations (laughs) I love that stuff. And I have to say that I think Ben and Abby are just spectacular in this film. They have chemistry. They have a connection. Their bond feels totally real to me. They give outstanding embodied performances. And I felt like they were these people. They were these characters. The thing about John Keats and Fanny Brown is like, we don't really know what they looked like. I mean, yeah, there's some photos of her, I think. And there's like a painting of him. But in our minds, they're not like flesh and blood. We don't have those images of them. And so Ben and Abby had to embody them. And I think they did a fantastic job at it. I think they give just, like I said, spectacular performances. As they begin to fall in love in the film... Campion doesn't shy away from the pain of desire, the pain of loving another person. There's a tenderness between them, but there's also an aching. The film shows the early stages of love, you know, that stage when there's still a lot of passion. There's still a dreaminess about it. I mean, if you think about it, they never really got to be together. They didn't get to grow old together. They didn't get to be together for decades and to see how compatible they really would have been on a day-to-day basis in real life. They briefly met and fell in love. I mean, really over the course of a year or something. It didn't last that long. So we're seeing a love story in the very early stages when it's still in like what you'd call the honeymoon phase or it's still like the endorphins and all of that, you know, the intoxication of young love or of new love. But that's also a phase when the desire can be really overwhelming and electric and painful. Meeting Fanny really seemed to be an experience for Keats that was explosive. It seemed to unravel him really. He expresses a lot of pain and torment in his letters to her. He writes about how he can't breathe or live without her. I think for him, love became a real thing. It was no longer theoretical. It was no longer something he just kind of dreamed about or imagined. It was something that became real and, and it became in his everyday life. And he experienced the ecstasy of it, the euphoria of it. And he also really felt the way that it can tear you apart inside because, you know, he can't be with her the way that he wants to be. The pain of their love is the separation 
That's what's so painful. Like at one point, Keats and Brown leave for Isle of Wight. They leave for a summer. And Fanny's heartbroken to be separated from Keats for that long. But that's why he starts writing letters to her. And when she does receive those letters, she's ecstatic. She like clutches them to her heart. She reads them over and over again when she's in her bedroom, when she's in the field of bluebells. Fanny has the same torment that he has. She says that when she doesn't hear from him, she feels like she's dead, like the air has been sucked from her lungs. But when she receives a letter from Keats, she says that she knows their world is real. So it's like not hearing from him feels like death. And then when she gets a letter from him, it's like she's resuscitated. She's revived. She's alive again because she's connected to him. I think in an age of instant communication, it's probably hard for us to understand what it was like to wait really long periods of time to hear from someone and the agony that that could cause that you would not have contact with them for a really long time. The letters are stunning. I mean, they're overwhelming in their romance and beauty. They're the kind of love letters that I think any woman would want to receive. Though they're not always nice. (laughs) They're not always beautiful. Keats expresses his torment in them, his longing, even his concerns about Fanny and her faithfulness. He gets a little paranoid. I love that Campion weaves both the letters and Keats's poetry into the film. The letters really create an intimacy between these two people. Fanny touches the paper like she would touch his face or his hand. She kisses the paper. The letters become almost a substitute for him. Through language, their love really deepens. They're physically apart, but emotionally, they're still intimate and close through their letters to each other. I did want to read a few excerpts uh, from the letters. I think these quotes are just extraordinary. And as I was rereading the book, I was just overwhelmed and like swooning over these love letters, as I said earlier. Keats writes, quote, The world is too brutal for me. I am glad there is such a thing as the grave. I am sure I shall never have any rest till I get there. Unquote. And then he says, quote, Write the softest words and kiss them, that I may at least touch my lips where yours have been. Unquote. And then this is a very, a very famous one, quote, I almost wish we were butterflies and lived but three summer days. Three such days with you I could fill with more delight than 50 common years could ever contain, unquote. And another one, quote, I have two luxuries to brood over on my walks, your loveliness and the hour of my death, unquote. Quote, I cannot exist without you. I am forgetful of everything but seeing you again. My life seems to stop there. I see no further. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. I should be exquisitely miserable without the hope of soon seeing you. I should be afraid to separate myself far from you. Unquote. Quote, I have been astonished that men could die martyrs for religion. I have shuddered at it. I shudder no more. I could be martyred for my religion. Love is my religion. I could die for that. I could die for you. My creed is love, and you are its only tenant, unquote. And then he says, quote, I cannot breathe without you, unquote. Love is his religion. Like he said, he used to not be able to understand it. But when he meets Fanny, he understands it. He he does. And then he says, quote, I wish to believe in immortality. I wish to live with you forever, unquote. 
just astonishing. I mean, these letters are astonishing. Like, I can't even imagine. I was thinking about this the other day. Like, what was it like to be Fanny and to receive these letters? To know that a man felt this deeply about you and wrote it in this way and put it into language in this way and created these words for you. These were private letters. These were private letters. Keats was writing them to her. He was pouring them from his heart. He did not know they would ever be shared with the world. As we know, they weren't published until 15 years after her own death. So he really didn't know anybody would read this. These are private words that he's sending to the woman he loves. And they're just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Like I was swooning. I was swooning so hard I, need to, I needed to lay down. <laughs> I was like, how do I meet a man like this? <laughs> this is what I want. I want love letters like John Keats. Every man is being held to that standard now. I don't care if it's an impossible standard. I want you to write me letters like John Keats and also love me like John Cassavetes loved Jenna Rollins. <laughs> Those are my models for love. John Cassavetes and John Keats. My standards are ridiculous. I know. <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, what was it like to be Fanny? And what did she write to him? Like I said, Campion creates what Fanny might have written back. Like there's one part of the film when she does the butterfly farm and she writes about the butterfly farm to Keats, but we don't really know what she said back to him. We'll never know. I, I imagine that... um her letters got thrown out when he died. I'm sure he took them with him to Italy possibly and they just threw them away or something and didn't keep them her part of the correspondence. I tell you that's also a fascinating thing about letters is that sometimes you'll have half the correspondence or like you won't have both sides or it's so fragile. Like think about all the letters that are lost that we'll never get to read. They're so intimate. I also think that the powerful thing about John Keats's love letters to Fanny is not just their passion and beauty, but how they were written as Keats confronted his own death. He is tormented, not just by his longing for her and his desire for her, but also by the fact that he has so little time with her. Death haunts their correspondence. Death haunts these letters that he knows he doesn't have a lot of time and he can't be with her. He just can't and he knows it, especially after he has that lung hemorrhage. You know, when he gets caught in the rain and has that hemorrhage, he knows their time's running out. Their love story is tragic because of its brevity. There's this whole life that they didn't get to live together. You wonder how things would have been if he had lived. And I'm sure Fanny was haunted by that as well. Death interrupts everything. Death is what tears them from each other's arms. Before Keats leaves for Rome, Fanny is sobbing in his arms and wishing it was all a dream. Wondering if there's another life. Not wanting to believe that they were made for this kind of suffering, she says. That's what Keats reports that she said. Death tears them from each other, just rips them from each other. And it's heartbreaking. Obviously, the relationship between Fanny and Keats is central to the film. 
and I love the way it's represented and explored. The film also does other things beyond just that. The love story is absolutely central and important, but there's other themes that I find really compelling. One of them is the way the film looks at the life of a poet and the meaning and importance of poetry in our lives. So in this film, we really see the material conditions of Keats's life. I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the romance of the writer's life, but John Keats was destitute. He didn't have any help or support, hardly at all, except for Brown and some of his friends. Near the end of the film, when he goes to Italy, it's his friends that have scrounged up money and collected money to send him there, to get him out of England and the really harsh winter that they feel like will exacerbate his condition. They want to get him to Italy where it's warmer. So he didn't have a lot of support at all. He didn't have money. He didn't have prospects. That's a big reason why Fanny's family did not want her to get married to him or even engaged to him. Probably why Keats didn't want to get engaged really either because he knew that he could not provide for her. He could not take care of her. He couldn't even take care of himself. So his financial, his financial situation greatly affected his life and his health. And I think it's also a reminder that a lot of writers barely make any money at all and they're often financially precarious. I was just reading an interview that one of my favorite modern writers did. Her name is Kate Zambrino and I absolutely love her work. I love her book Heroines. Her work is just fascinating to me. I love her writing. And she had this great interview recently. In her work, she talks a lot about her life. There's an aspect of memoir and like autobiography in her work, but it's hybrid and she mixes her own life with whatever whatever subject she's writing about. She's not afraid to talk about what it's like to struggle to pay for health insurance. And she was talking about this in the interview. It'll be linked in the show notes. She was talking about how she doesn't make a lot of money. She's an adjunct professor. She lives a very precarious life in that way. She struggles to pay for health insurance. She struggles with her health. Just she she's open about it. She's open about how she doesn't make a lot of money with her books. I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd call her prolific, but she's put out quite a few books the last few years, honestly. But she's very open about how she doesn't necessarily make a lot of money from those books. And I think she recently got a Guggen grant and she said yeah that that grant is great because I'm going to be able to pay for health health insurance the next couple of years like she's really open and honest about it she doesn't make a lot at her teaching job and she doesn't make a whole lot through her books but she continues to write her books because she wants to write them and she cares about them and she's a writer, you know, and that's what she does. This is her passion. These are the things she wants to create, the things she wants to write and say, but that doesn't mean that it's like romantic and beautiful to be a writer. Like she talks about the reality of it, the struggle of it on just a day-to-day basis of paying for rent and paying for health insurance, not making enough money from this. So I appreciated her honesty. And it was just interesting that I read that interview and then I was working on this episode because I think Bright Star does a really good job of showing how brutal life was for John Keats. Like, yeah, he published some books and he's considered one of the greatest writers now. But when he was alive, he was destitute and in poverty and barely making it. (laughs) He was barely surviving. It was hard. 
that was really hard. A lot of his books got negative reviews. Kate Zambrino talked about this in her interview, how a lot of her books get mixed reviews. And it was the same for John Keats. I mean, he wasn't really lauded when he was alive. And it was only over time that his fame and legend grew. It's not easy to be a writer. You don't, you don't always get rewarded with like accolades and stuff like that. It kind of just has to be enough that there are some people out there who like reading what you write and what you create, but it can be hard. I mean, often the reward of being an artistic or creative person has to come not from getting validation from other people, but in the work itself and what it gives you and how it makes you feel. So yeah, I just thought the film did such a great job of showing the reality of a poet's life, not having a lot of money, being obscure, experiencing ill health. It's a beautiful and it's a romantic film, but it doesn't gloss over the difficulties of being a writer in a world where that profession or that, I don't know what you want to call it, vocation possibly, or that art isn't necessarily valued by the wider public. So it looks at a poet's life and it also looks at the meaning and purpose of poetry in our lives. I mean, the film is really saturated with poetry. Keats and Fanny recite poetry to each other. Keats himself will... Um, recite some of his his poems when he's around people. He's at some kind of dinner with Fanny's family and he starts to recite a bit of When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be, which is a really good poem as well by him. So there's this wonderful scene where Keats is talking to Fanny about poetry. He says that a poem needs understanding through the senses and he compares it to diving into a lake so that you can quote luxuriate in the sensation of the water unquote. You don't work out the lake. That's what he's saying. He says quote it is an experience beyond thought. Poetry soothes and emboldens the soul to accept mystery. Unquote. And I love that. Poetry soothes and emboldens the soul to accept mystery. I still can't get over it. <laughs> I just, I can't get over that line. I think all art, all great art, has a core of mystery to it. Something you can't decipher. Just as Keats can't understand why he's drawn to Fanny. There's a scene in the film where he talks about why he doesn't understand why he feels what he does about her. Um, He says he doesn't understand women or they confuse him, but he's drawn to her and he doesn't quite understand why. It's mysterious to him. Likewise, I don't think we're, I don't think we always know why we're drawn to certain works of art. We don't always know why this particular film or this poem or this book really lives inside of us and becomes part of us. I have those experiences with certain kinds of books and certain kinds of uh, poetry where I just feel like this is something that I could have written because this is something that I feel. And I feel that with certain films as well. You know, I have films like that for me, for sure, where it's spiritual. It's spiritual, and you can't always put it into words. For me, poetry has always been important. As I said, I loved Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman and Sylvia Plath and other poets from a very early age. I was into the images. I was into more modernist type uh, poetry. I loved reading poetry. I even wrote it myself, though I don't consider myself a poet, like I said. And I still read poetry all the time. I love poets like Mary Oliver and Jane Kenyon and Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver's known as a short story writer, but his poetry just knocks me out. I love Raymond Carver's poetry. Give it a read. 
if you haven't yet, but I also love his short stories too. I prefer poetry that tends to focus on nature and ordinary life. Those are the poems that help me see the deeper meaning of existence and they make me grateful to be alive. So I like poetry that revels in the sensuousness of life. And I think poetry can bring mystery into our lives. That's what Keats was saying. And it can bring deep emotion and it can um, also bring greater attention to the world around us. Those are some of the reasons I read poetry and why I love it so much. I also wanted to linger a moment on how the film looks at Fanny and centers her. The film begins with Fanny and she's actually kind of the main character. When Keats leaves for the summer, we don't go with him there to the Isle of Wight. We stay with Fanny. When he goes to Italy, we don't go there with him. We stay with Fanny. The whole film is centered around Fanny and her subjectivity and her perspective, not Keats. Keats is kind of decentered. I mean, he's an important part of the film, obviously, but Fanny is given more attention and time than he is. And like I said earlier, she's stylish, she's smart, she's all kinds of stuff. Very complex. The film begins with her with her stitching men making clothes and we see her doing that throughout the film and it is true that she loved fashion and it's a reason that brown keats's friend put her down and saw her as shallow she liked to dance she says that at one point she's someone full of life who wants to live she's not some dour depressing person she's full of life and flair and there's a very interesting emphasis on fanny stitching and on her fashion and i got to thinking why isn't she seen as an artist the way that keats is why isn't making clothes seen as creative in the same way as writing a poem you need to know how to put color together how to work with the fabric there's all kinds of things that you need to know to create a garment and to make something that's beautiful he made something beautiful in his poetry and she made something beautiful that she wore on her body they're both forms of creating beauty and they are both creative acts and artistic acts I think creating clothing is very artistic. I used to love the show Project Runway. Like the first few seasons are wonderful. Like the first maybe five, six, seven. I don't know when I stopped watching. At some point I stopped watching. Does anybody remember Santino? Does anybody remember the Santino season and Andre and Red Lobster and all that? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good season. That might be my favorite season when Santino was on there. He was such a jerk. <laughs> no, but I was so into Project Runway in the first few seasons. I haven't watched it in years. I should probably get back to it because I just loved it so much. And what I think Project Runway did such a great job of, me and my mom used to obsessively watch it when it first came out. What it did such a great job of was showing how creating clothing was artistic and it was creative. Every episode, they would give them a challenge. They would say, I remember one where they had to take like moss and like flowers and like nature stuff and they had to create dresses out of it. They would literally do things like that where like take this moss and create a dress or look at somebody like Alexander McQueen. I mean, my God. I mean, when you look at some of the garments that man created and some of his fashion shows, right? That is art. That is walking art on a woman's body. Or just think about the fashion created for movies 
right? The costume designers for movies, which tend to be women. And think about some movies that have amazing costume design. That is artistic. That is creative. You're using fabric and color and all kinds of things. So all I'm saying is that like, why isn't what Fanny's doing seen as creative in the same way that writing poetry is creative? And I do think that Campion wants us to consider this. Fanny is not a shallow girl. She is creative in her own right. The only difference is that she wears her creations and they're beautiful in the film. I love Fanny's clothes. I love them. She creates beautiful stuff and stitches beautiful stuff. Why don't we take that as seriously as we take a poem? And so something like Project Runway was a really, it was like a big show for me because it was like, wow, these people are so creative. That's what I saw. And like, and like a designer like Alexander McQueen, where I was like, this is creative. This is like amazing. And Christian Siriano came out of it. That the Christian Siriano season was really good. He was really great. And he's built a really great career with some beautiful clothing. So I think it's an art. I really do. And I love fashion documentaries. I've watched all kinds of fashion documentaries and I love it. I, I get really into that stuff. I have since I was like a child. And also with Fanny, you know, I think she's creative in her own right. And I think Campion wanted us to see that and think about it. Fanny's also curious about poetry. She shows an interest in it and she shows an interest in Keats's work. She wants to try to understand it. She's open to it and she even shares her opinions about it. And she, she does not stroke his ego. You know, she's not trying to necessarily lie to him or anything and be nice She's honest about what she thinks about some of the poems in Endymion, right? She's honest and she tells him what she really thinks and she doesn't hold back. And I think he probably respects her for that. I wanted to touch a moment on how the film looks at illness and the body a little bit because illness is definitely part of this film. Illness haunts the film, whether it's the death of Keats's brother, Tom, or his own failing body. You feel the fragility of life in the 19th century. Just getting caught in the rain could be a death sentence for somebody like Keats. And I think this is why Ben Wishaw was the perfect actor is there, there's a delicacy about him and a, and a fragility. He's kind of small, very elegant. He's just elegant and beautiful. I, I'm a big fan of his. So he was perfect in conveying sort of the frailty of Keats's body and the vulnerability of it. It's a very vulnerable performance, I think, from Ben. He's crying at times. You know, he's in his own pain. His health is failing as well. Tuberculosis was a serious issue at the time and for many decades to come, like into the 20th century, tuberculosis was a problem. And quite a few writers over the centuries died of tuberculosis, including Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Henry David Thoreau, Emily and Charlotte Bronte, Anton Chekhov. So a lot of writers were affected by it. I think Susan Sontag even has like a book or an a long essay about tuberculosis and the way it's written about and different writers who had it. The last around half hour of the film is really marked by the decline of Keats's health and his increasingly desperate situation that he has no money. His, his body is failing. His body is breaking down and how terrifying that must have been. And there was nothing he could do about it. Nothing at all. And you see the toll that his health takes on Fanny. You feel her fear, her helplessness as she has to watch the man she loves really slip away from her and be in pain and suffer 
She has to watch him suffer. And that's really painful. Finally, I want to wrap this episode up by looking at the way that the film represents Fanny's grief over losing Keats. Because this is a very, very powerful part of the film that has always stayed with me is the expression of Fanny's grief when she finds out that Keats has died. So the film vividly depicts Fanny's grief. You know, when Fanny hears the news that Keats is dead in, in Italy, when she hears the news that Keats has died in Italy, she's physically debilitated by it. She falls to her knees. This is a stunning scene in the film. And I think Abby Cornish, I don't know how she did it. (laughs) Like this acting scene is superb. Like I can't even handle it. It still brings tears to my eyes every time I watch it. So she falls to her knees. She's gasping for breath. She calls for her mother. This is like a tour de force performance here. I think few films have captured the painful physicality of grief the way that this scene does. When she says to her mother, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You know, it reminds me of when Keats in one of his letters said that he can't breathe without her. And he may have said it at some point in the film. I can't really remember. He couldn't breathe without her or he felt that way. And now that he is dead she can't breathe without him. I mean, that's how it affects her. And that's what grief can do. Grief can absolutely affect your body. It's not just your mind. You know, it's not just an emotional thing. It's a physical thing, particularly at the moment when you hear that a person is dead, when you hear that you have lost this person and that they're gone. And so this scene communicates and conveys the physical agony of that. Like the feeling in your body that you might die of it. That you could die of your grief. You could die of the shock of losing another person that you love so deeply. This scene goes there. It's so deep in that way. It's an intense scene. Really. Like it brought tears to my eyes for sure this time. And this is probably like the third or fourth time I've seen the film. We watch Fanny sew her black mourning clothes. So earlier in the film or at the beginning of the film, she was sewing her beautiful garments. And now at the end of the film, she's sewing her mourning clothes. She chops her hair off. That's a big scene. And the bits of hair fall to the ground. You know, throughout the film, Fanny has this very ethereal presence. She's wearing daring and colorful ensembles. So the decision to wear black and to chop off her hair communicates her grief in a visible way. She's trying to take the inside and put it outside. And if you think about that, that's kind of what fashion does. Like a lot of people use fashion as a way to express themselves. I mean, it's not something that everybody's able to do. You know, not everybody has access to the greatest clothes and stuff. But there are people who use fashion and use clothes to sort of express their personality and who they are. That's kind of what Fanny was doing with her clothing. Well, she was trying to take who she was inside and express it physically, express it externally on her body. You know, her brazenness, her outgoingness, her her vivacity, her vivaciousness, all this stuff. She conveyed all that on in through her clothing, through her dresses. So it makes sense that in her time of grief, she would want to communicate her grief visibly. She's like wearing grief on her body through cutting her hair and wearing the black clothing. And the film ends with Fanny walking by herself on the heath in the woods, reciting Keats's poem, Bright Star. 
And this is where her and Keats spend a lot of time together. She's wandering in the woods. She's almost like this ghostly presence there, reciting Bright Star. And as she wanders alone in the woods, her face expresses so many emotions. At times she cries, but there's also this moment when she kind of smiles and maybe she's thinking about her memories of Keats and their time together. So that's very powerful too, is that she continues to mourn him. And wearing the ring is a way to mourn him and to say, this person meant something to me and I'm going to remember them. Their love affair was obstructed by distance. She was often kept from him due to his ill health. He was geographically separated her both in England when he lived away from Wentworth Place and then when he moved to Italy. But at least language created an intimacy between them. His love letters and poems deepened and sustained their relationship. So it's profoundly fitting that the movie leaves us with an image of Fanny reciting Keats's words. They are the one part of him that can never be lost. His body is gone. His presence is gone. Their relationship is over, but she is still connected to him through his words, through the words that he left behind for her, through his letters and the poems. That is the one part of him she will never lose and that she will always have. So I love that the film ends in that way with her reciting Bright Star and reciting his words I think it's a really fitting and beautiful way to end the film. So that is everything that I have to say about Bright Star. It's a beautiful film. It's, it was a pleasure and a joy to revisit it. I I really enjoyed watching it. And so, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.